All right, you're not supposed to say uh, at the beginning of speeches, but I got a little tickle in my throat, okay? So, sorry, front row. Uh, and so if, you, if I pop a cough drop in halfway through, we'll see how it goes. But if I'm taking lots of drinks, that's what's going on. Um, anyways, uh, have you guys ever heard of typology? Have you guys heard of this phrase in theology called typology? Typology is this framework for interpreting the Bible. We actually talk about typology a lot in here over the last number of years, but we usually just don't use that phrase typology. And so uh, I want to nerd out with you guys for a moment. Will you nerd out with me and bear with me as I kind of talk through this uh, technical phrase and framework for interpreting the Old Testament called typology? Uh, To do that, I'm going to read a quote from this great book that I encourage everybody to read. If you have a hard time understanding the Bible, if you have a hard time understanding the Old, the Old Testament in particular, read this book. It's called The Epic of Eden. The Epic of Eden. And it's by Sandra Richter. Sandra Richter. She talks about typology in one section of her book. And this is what she says about typology. Uh, the, the quote will be on the screen. The word type is about as plain vanilla a word as one can imagine. But in the field of biblical studies, the word has a technical definition that makes it quite important. In the task of interpretation, a type is an event or person in one era of redemptive history that has a specific parallel, an anti-type, in another era of redemptive history. A type is not an allegory or a symbol, nor is the relationship between a type and its anti-type allegorical. As G.R. Osborne puts it, a symbol is an abstract correspondence, while a type is an actual historical event or person. A specific parallel between two historical entities. Okay, G.R. Osborne, she continues to quote him, and he says this about types as well. He says, therefore, biblical typology involves an analogical correspondence in which earlier events, persons, and places in salvation history become patterns by which later events, persons, and places are interpreted. Okay. So the idea here with this typology or type framework in interpreting the Bible is not only does God speak in history and do things in history and show who he is throughout history by doing things himself, but God seems to speak through history itself. That God takes people, real people, real historical people and real historical events, and he takes them and he speaks through them. And and typology is going, hey, in the Old Testament, there are these different people who God is speaking through to show who he is, and they are types. So if you're familiar with the Bible at all, one of the most famous types in the Bible is Adam. Often Adam, you can even see this in Romans, there is the first Adam who failed, and then Jesus, the Christ, is the second Adam who succeeded, where that Adam failed. So we are in this series called We Want a King, and we've been looking really closely at King David, and what most of us realize is there is this correspondence and correlation and connection between David and Jesus, What I want to say is that David is a type. 
that we understand God better when we look at David and see that his life is a type pointing to Jesus. And so why does God use these types in history, these real historical people, to, to, to show things about himself? Uh, another quote from Sandra Richter in that same book, she says this. This is the function of a type. She says, probably the most important function of a type in God's redemptive plan is that it teaches. Like a cosmic flannel graph, a type gives a concrete and often simple example of a more abstract and often complex concept so that we humans can get our minds around it. And so in this series, as we look at King David, he is a type. And the purpose of seeing King David's story at times is to see things about God that are far more complex than we can get by just looking at those characteristics of God uh, like face to face. And so God uses David and his life to show in more simple ways complex realities about himself, complex realities about his character, complex realities about his son, Jesus, God in the flesh. And so... David, for us today, he's going to act as a cosmic flannel graph, okay? If you grew up in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you know what that means. If the rest of you go, what's that? When I was a kid and you're in Sunday school, they had this cloth board and they would have cut out cloth Bible characters and they would stick them on the board and like that's how they would tell Bible stories. It, it, honestly, it was incredible. And... <laughs> Like, I remember a lot of Bible stories, like, being told that way, right? And so what this author is saying is that David is like a cosmic flannel graph. He is being put on the flannel graph board to teach us things about who God is. So here's what my uh, claim for today is. Today, when we're in 2 Samuel chapter 9, that today, this chapter in David's life, this story about David's life, perhaps more than any other story in David's life, it acts as a type. Acts as a type that points to who God is. Acts as a, point, uh, as a type that points to King Jesus and the sort of love that he has for the world. And so this is what we're going to do. The, uh, today we're going to be looking at 2 Samuel 9, which is a beautiful story about a king's love for someone vulnerable. But we're going to see that it's not just a story pointing out the beauty of the love of King David. It's a story that acts as a type to point us to God and his love. So we're going to go through 2 Samuel 9 today together. And then we're going to look at five ways that David's love in this story really points to the much grander, bigger, more complex love of God. Okay, so we'll go through the story, see, just look at the story, and then look at five ways that this story points to the love of God, that this story acts as a type pointing to the complex realities of God's love. Does that make sense? All right, let's, let's hop into it. We're going to be in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. To give you guys a, a quick recap of where we've been so far in uh, this We Want a King series, uh, at least recently... What we've seen in the series is David finally becomes king, 
And as soon as he becomes king, a mini civil war of sorts erupts. And, and there's this pro, little bit of a mini civil war around this transfer of power with David becoming king. And so there's some different issues there that David has to deal with and solve and others in the story are dealing with and, and not solving very well. And then last week, we, what we saw in particular is that David brings the Ark of the Covenant, which was the manifest presence of God in that time and place, into Jerusalem where he had set up his capital as king. Essentially saying, hey, God's presence has to be what leads me as king. It has to be what is with me as king. Okay, And so 2 Samuel 9, where we're hopping today, it, it's showing just another day in the life of, of David as king. So let's read the first three verses. It says this, David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David, and the king said to him, are, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. Let's pause there for a minute. So once everything has settled down for King David, he's sitting there as king. And one of his acts as king, what he wants to do is he wants to show kindness to Saul's family. This is incredible. One, we, we understand that surely David wants to show kindness to Jonathan's family because Jonathan was his best friend. And he wants to take care of anybody that was left in Jonathan's family. But it's also incredible because the way he poses it is he says, is there any left, anyone left of Saul's lineage? Because what had happened was there's all these kinds of assassinations that people were doing to Saul's lineage in order to please King David. And they, what we have found out in these weeks in the story is that that didn't please David at all, at all. And so when everything finally settles down, David goes, is there anyone from my enemy's family? The guy that chased me all over the ancient Near East. Is there anyone from his family that I could show kindness to? And David doesn't want to just show kindness to. He wants to show the kindness of God to them. This word in the Hebrew that we translate kindness in English, it is a powerful Hebrew word for love. It is this powerful, loyal, compassionate love. Kind love. It is this powerful, kind, compassionate, loyal love. Like we don't have an English word that can capture all of that meaning. But this is what David wants to do to the lineage of his enemy. That's what David wants to do in one of his first acts as king after everything is settled down. Let's keep reading the story. And so what we see actually before we keep reading the story is that one of Saul's old servants, Ziba, comes forward. And Ziba says, yes, actually, one of Jonathan's sons, he's alive still. He's, he's someone that's been injured in, in, in both his feet. In fact, actually, before we keep reading, this kid that we'll see is now an adult, his name is Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, we, we see his story in 2 Samuel start off when he's five years old. And this is in 2 Samuel chapter 4. And Mephibosheth, he, uh, he had a nanny. And when his uncle Ishbosheth 
who was Saul's actual son, uh, was assassinated in one of these kinds of coups where they were trying to please King David, even though that's not what King David wanted. When Ishbosheth was assassinated, the nanny of Mish- Mephibosheth, I knew I was going to mess it up at some point, Mephibosheth takes him in haste and goes into hiding. And while she's running in haste with him, I don't know if she hopped on a horse, if she's just running herself, uh, she drops Mephibosheth, he's five years old, and she drops him so bad that his feet are injured to the point where he can't walk for the rest of his life. So this isn't a mere injury, this is a very serious injury that maimed him for the rest of his life where he couldn't walk right. And so Ziba comes forward and says, yes, the son of Jonathan that can't walk, he's still around. Let's see what happens next in the next couple of verses, verses 4 and 5. The king asked him, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar, at the house of Makur, son of Amiel. So King David had him brought from the house of Makur, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. Before we read what happens next in the story, it's just important to know a little detail here that if you don't know Hebrew, you'll miss it. But it says where Mephibosheth, who has not been named in the story yet, it says where he's from. And he's from a little place called Lodabar. And Lodabar in Hebrew means something like no pasture. There's no pasture here. There's no grass here. In other other words, it's like animals can't eat here. Things don't thrive here. This is a desolate place. So Mephibosheth, who who is maimed due to uh, fleeing war, essentially, ends up living in a place that is desolate. And so we get a little bit more of uh, what Mephibosheth's life has been like since five years old, now that, now that he's a, uh, an adult, living in a desolate place. So David brings him in. Let's see what happens next. Verse 6. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down, and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth! I'm, I'm your servant, he replied. Don't, don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'll restore to you all of your grandfather, grandfather Saul's fields, and you'll always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, where is your servant that you take an interest in a dead, or what is your servant that you take interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I've given your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do all all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. So what happens next in the story is Mephibosheth is, is brought in to King David, and as soon as King David sees him, he just cries out and says his name, Mephibosheth. Now Mephibosheth's worried. 
He's scared. You can tell he's scared because of David's response to him. And Mephibosheth, trembling, says, okay, I'm your servant. What do you want of me? Now, Mephibosheth thought, okay, all of my lineage, all of my cousins, all of my relatives have been killed in the name of King David. I must be next. And David goes, no, no, hey, hey, don't, don't be afraid. I'm not here to harm you. In fact, I want to do the opposite. I want to show you this kindness, this, this hesed in the Hebrew, this powerful, loving, loyal, kindness, love. I want to give you all that Saul left behind. I want you to have that. I want you to live that. Not only that, Mephibosheth, I want you to eat at the king's table with me every day. Like you're one of my sons. Like my sons eat with me every day. I want you to come along inside with them and eat at my table every day. And we see a little epilogue at the end of that chapter where Mephibosheth goes on to do that. That Mephibosheth chooses to live in Jerusalem rather than where his land was uh, that he got from his grandfather father Saul. He chooses to live in Jerusalem because he gets to eat at the king's table every day like one of the sons. What's, what's more... Amazing, too, is he ends up having a son named Mika. And, and this is kind of the end of, of chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. Can you see why I, I made this claim about uh, David being a type that points to God? Can you read the story? And are you beginning to see how David is a, uh, is a type that points to King Jesus and God and the sort of love that God has for us? And so what I want to do the rest of the sermon is I just kind of want to revel and marvel in the love of God displayed in this story. Remember, David is a cosmic flannel graph trying to teach us about the love of God here. The sort of love that Jesus has for us. And so I want to spend the rest of the sermon just marveling at the love of God that we see in this story. And so we're going to look at five different things about God's love and what it does and what it is that this story acts as a type or typology helps us to interpret in, in knowing about who God is. Okay, so five things. The first thing is this. Excuse me. First thing is this. God's love adopts us in. God's love adopts us in. Mephibosheth in the story, he ends up like one of the king's sons at the dinner table. This was the highest honor you could have from the king or one of the highest honors you could have of the king in that day. And Mephibosheth ends up at the table like one of David's own sons. One of the most beautiful works that King Jesus, God in the flesh, did through the cross and the resurrection is he made it so that you and I can be adopted into the family of God. Part of the beautiful, loving, kind work that Jesus did is he made it possible for you and me to be adopted into his family where God is our father. Jesus' blood has signed your adoption papers and my adoption papers. God has adopted us into the family. We see this in this story of Mephibosheth that, that David's not looking for vengeance, that David's not looking for another servant. He is looking for a son. God is looking for sons and daughters, not servants. 
right? Part of our identity as Christians is serving God. But God wants to make you his sons and his daughters. God's love adopts us into his family. You are a child of God when you trust in Jesus and you see the good news of what the gospel has done. You're a child of God. God wants to be as, God's love wants to be as close to you as a good father's love is to his children. That's the sort of love we see displayed in this story that points to God's greater and grander love of adoption. God's love adopts us in. Second, second thing about God's love. God's love searches for the vulnerable. God's love searches and finds the vulnerable. David as king, when everything had finally settled down, one of his first acts as king is he said, I want to find the last vulnerable people of Saul's family. I want to find them. I want to bring them in. I want to bring them in. I want to restore their lives. It's not that different than what Jesus said he was about. Jesus one day, he's teaching all kinds of things and he's hanging out with all kinds of sinners. You can look at this in Luke 15. And it says that the holy men of Jesus' day, they were complaining and muttering and grumbling about who Jesus was hanging out with. And Jesus tells these three stories. But one of the stories he says is this. You guys don't get me, essentially, is what Jesus says to them. Any one of you would go out and find a lost sheep and bring that lost sheep in when that sheep has wandered away from the rest of the group. And Jesus is going, that's what I'm doing. I'm bringing in the lost sheep. I'm searching for the vulnerable and I'm bringing them into my family. Jesus looks for the vulnerable and brings them in. Not only that, there's another time where Jesus is teaching his disciples right before he goes to the cross. And he's talking about what his kingdom is like. And he's talking about who, who will end up being in his kingdom. And what he says is the people that are going to end up in my kingdom are the ones that care for the hungry, that care for the thirsty and give them a drink, that care for the naked and clothe them, that care for the immigrant and the foreigner, that care for the imprisoned. Those are the people that are going to end up in my kingdom because they understand that the vulnerable, vulnerable of our world has my face on them. And what they do for the vulnerable, they do for me. When David cares for the vulnerable Mephibosheth and seeks him out, it is a picture of what God is cosmically doing in the universe. He is seeking out the vulnerable and he's bringing them in. And he's loving them and he's finding them. And his people are so changed by that love that they go and do likewise. God's love brings in the vulnerable. This story about Mephibosheth there shows us the sort of king that King Jesus is. You can't read the Bible very long and not land on this idea that King Jesus goes after the vulnerable and brings them in. In fact, if you're here today and you're like, man, I feel like a vulnerable person, I wonder if King Jesus is wooing you with his spirit saying, hey, I bring in the vulnerable. I want you part of my family. That's why you're here. God goes after the vulnerable and draws them in and brings them in. Okay, the third thing about God's love here in this story. God's love calls you by name. God's love calls you by name. 
God will not define you the way the world defines you. It's really interesting when David says, hey, is there anybody left? Ziba comes forward, who knows all the details, coincidentally, about Mephibosheth. And he doesn't use Mephibosheth's name. He says, oh, there's a guy who can't walk. There's a guy who can't walk that's still around. Ziba defines Mephibosheth by his disability. But then, when Mephibosheth shows up into David's court, David call, starts off calling him by name. He says, Mephibosheth. David does what Ziba and the world around Mephibosheth didn't want to do. David dignifies Mephibosheth. He calls him by his name, not by his disability. Even though all throughout the narrative, we see that this is getting pointed out as a, as a huge part of, of how people identified Mephibosheth. David calls him by name. God calls you by name. I think a lot of us, we walk around, not so much, maybe there has been people in our lives that have called us names and we define ourselves by the names they've called us. But I think a lot of us walk around in our heads, calling ourselves names and define ourselves by saying, well, man, I'm unforgiving, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm unworthy, I'm not enough, I'm a failure, I'm ugly, I'm unlovable. A lot of us walk around with those names in our head defining who we are. God doesn't call you those things. He doesn't. He gives you a name. He calls you by your name. He gives you dignity. One amazing thing in the book of Revelation is it says that God has a name on like a white tablet just for you and him. I think it's there to say God is so connected to you and so loves you and so sees your true human image of God identity that he has a name that's just for you that fits you perfectly and gives you dignity and raises you up. God calls you by name. He has a holy identity for you as one of his children. So if that's true, church, that means a couple things. One, stop calling yourself names God wouldn't call you. In your head. Stop calling yourself names God wouldn't call you. For us who struggle and we actually accidentally labels, label others in all sorts of names, we need to stop seeing others as less than because God gives them dignity by calling us by name. Stop defining others by the external because God's love dignifies us and calls us by name. God calls us by name. Okay, the fourth thing God's love does for us is it gives us a hope and a future. God's love gives us a hope and a future. There's this really interesting detail in verse 12 that we kind of talked about a little bit of chapter 9 here of 2 Samuel. And it says that Mephibosheth had a son named Micah. Now, it's interesting for a lot of reasons. One of the things that's interesting is Mika's name means uh, who's like Yahweh, right? Otherwise, uh, other, otherwise, or another way to say that is Mika's name means like there's no one like God. There's no one like God. Another reason why that's so interesting to me is because Mephibosheth, who couldn't walk, who had a disability in that day, that basically stole any hope for a future for someone in that day. 
If you had a disability like that, you had no hope for a future. Because in that day, your hope for a future was you have kids, they take care of you in your old age when you can't work anymore, and they help you live through the end of your life gracefully. But Mephibosheth, who had no sons before he met David, he had no hope. He knew he was going to die one day. He was going to die probably alone. And he was probably going to die sooner than most people die. Mephibosheth had no hope or a future before he met David. And then he meets King David, who so lifts up Mephibosheth that Mephibosheth ends up having a hope and a future. He has a son who Mephibosheth names who is like God. There's no one like God. God's love gives us a hope and a future. God's love gives us a hope and a future. Maybe you're hopeless right now. The resurrection of King Jesus proclaims to you, to every single person in here, that you have a son on the way. You have a hope and a future on the way. Things might be bad right now, but you have hope on the way. God's love's not, it's not just nice for our emotions. God's, love's, God's love makes it so that the pains of this world are momentary and fleeting compared to the resurrection hope that we will have with him forever. I'm excited. Sorry, it feels like I'm yelling. I am. God's love gives us a hope and a future. David's love does that for Mephibosheth. God's love does that much more powerfully for each and every one of us. Things might seem hopeless, and maybe they are, but they're not really because of the resurrection. You have a son on the way. God's loving kindness, loving, powerful, kind, loyal love to you will not leave you alone and forgotten. All right, the fifth thing that we can see about God's love in this story is God's love absolutely changes us. God's love absolutely changes us. Uh, Mephibosheth, when he first approaches David, he's very solemn. He's afraid, right? He's like, man, uh, here, I'm, I'm your servant. And he's really afraid of approaching David because of what could happen to him. And then even David begins to show Mephibosheth some of his goodness. And then we see that not only is Mephibosheth scared and afraid, but Mephibosheth really sees himself as a dead dog. Like Mephibosheth's self-proclaimed identity to David is, why are you treating a dead dog like me this, this way? And so Mephibosheth is this person who's, and it makes sense based on his story, who is down on himself, depressed, hopeless, scared. Doesn't know what bad thing is going to come next to in his life. And then David shows kindness, love to Mephibosheth, and it absolutely changes him. Here's how I know it absolutely changes him. Besides the fact that he has a son like we saw it absolutely changes him because we see one more interaction that Mephibosheth has with David in 2 Samuel. And it's in 2 Samuel 19. 
And basically what happens is there's a coup. Some of David's sons and one of his sons in particular is trying to become king. So David has to go off and hide again, just like he used to have to hide with Saul. And eventually David comes back into Jerusalem. And the story that Ziba has been spreading is that Mephibosheth didn't care about King David. He was just waiting for the opportunity to take in more riches from King David. And so David is convinced by Ziba and he approaches Mephibosheth and he's, he comes at Mephibosheth and he's just like, hey, why have you betrayed me? Why didn't you care when I was out being persecuted by my son? What did, why didn't you follow? Why didn't you come with? Why didn't you support me? And the way Mephibosheth responds is just a totally different Mephibosheth than the one we meet first. Mephibosheth knows Ziba has lied about him. He knows Ziba's betrayed him. And he just goes, listen, David, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry. I can't walk. Like, no one would take me to go with you. I've been in mourning since you've been gone. I've been so sad. And then there's this moment where Mephibosheth says to David something along the lines of, listen, David, you've been so good to me. You've been like an angel of the Lord. I get, that, I get why you think I've betrayed you. Punish me however you want. Do whatever you got to do. I understand. You've been so good to me. I'm okay with whatever you end up doing to me. He is a totally different Mephibosheth. He goes from scared, depressed, dead dog Mephibosheth to going, hey, I'm so changed by your love, David, that even in you, in the midst of your insecurity, David, I'm not gonna, that's not going to affect me. I'm going to let you do what you want to do. Mephibosheth goes from being an insecure person to a very secure person because of David's loving kindness that was shown to him. God's love absolutely changes us the same way that David's love changed Mephibosheth. God's love changes us. He takes us from people who are often insecure and his love helps us to be secure. God's love changes us. It just absolutely changes us if we let it. If we see in the story, God's love is not just a nice idea. God's love does things to us. It takes us from one place and puts us in another. It takes us from one kind of identity and gives us a stronger, better, loving identity. God's love absolutely changes us in all sorts of ways. So those are the five things that I see God's love doing in this story. I think that this story, more than any other, in my personal opinion, acts as a a type that points to the complex realities of God's love, the gospel, Jesus, and how he lives as king. But... There's something else that we have to know before we we move on, before we end the sermon. There's something else. That because of the way that that God has worked his Holy Spirit into each of our lives that proclaim faith in Jesus, because of how he's done that, we don't have to settle with only having David as a type that points to God's love. That in fact, because of God's Holy Spirit in us, now we, all of us, can act as many types pointing to the love of God. 
Your love and my love can point to the love of God. In fact, I'll say this. Your love and my love not only points to the love of God, sometimes I think in the way that we love the world, and when we echo the sort of love that God has for the world, it acts as a conduit to experience and know God's love. So when we love in all of these same ways, God works through that somehow. People experience the love of God somehow. And you'll, you'll be surprised to see how often they connect your love to God's love for them when we love like God. You and I can each be many types pointing to the love of God, pointing to King Jesus, pointing to the goodness of the gospel. You can adopt others into our church family. Pointing to the adoptive love of God. You can literally adopt people into your family. And it will point to, to the adoptive love of God. You can search out the vulnerable in Flagstaff and love them into the kingdom of God. You can treat people with dignity as seeing them as people with a name instead of people with broken identities. You can love lonely people so well that it gives them a hope and a future and a taste of the resurrection. Your love can absolutely change people. When you love people that are the hardest to love, I've watched it time and time again change them and grow them, and heal them, and mature them. Your love can absolutely change people. And, and what will happen is people, very quickly, when we love like God loves, they will connect that love to God's love, or they will be experiencing God's love through us. It's a wild thing that God does. He wants to love the world through his church. Not just a bunch of random, crazy experiences. God wants to love this world through you. And he does when we choose to see how we've been loved and we live out of that identity and we love others as many types pointing to Jesus ourselves. So church, may we see God's love today. May we know it deeply ourselves. And may we give it away. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your love. Gosh, God, I love this story. I love that you were so working in David's life that he could be a picture of how you would unfold your, unfold your love in the rest of history. God, all of those things David gives Mephibosheth, you give us and more. All of those things David did for Mephibosheth, you do for us and more. God, thank you for that. God, help us to see that. God, for the vulnerable in the room right now, you know who they are. Would you reach down and capture their hearts with your love? God, for the tired, the weary, for those in here who go, I don't know if I could keep living this way, would you love them so well 
that they are so secure in your love and understand your love and see your love as a way of life. God, we need your love. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for displaying it to us in this story. And thank you for continuing to display it throughout history. God, give us the eyes to see. Give us the ears to hear. We need your love, and we want to live your love, God. Empower us to do so. Amen.